this quarter what we're going to do is we're going to do the book of Mark. And what we're going to, the goal of doing the book of Mark is, um, is simply this. Jesus is this figure, right, this mythic figure um, where his name gets appropriated for all kinds of different agendas, right? And we take this idea of Jesus and, uh, and maybe, I, you know, every week I get an article or a blog or something sent to me where someone is explaining how Jesus endorses their agenda. Uh, you know, it's their political agenda, Democratic or Republican agenda, or the conservative or the liberal Jesus. And it's just very convenient that everybody has a Jesus that perfectly shapes their own agenda. We kind of load up this idea with Jesus with our own, uh, our, our own personality. And um, there's nobody that demonstrates that in a satirical way more clearly than Cal Naughton Jr. And uh, if you all know who Cal Naughton Jr. is... Uh, that's the character in Talladega Nights. Uh, you're like, who is this? Is he a theologian? No, it's, uh, what's his name? John C. Riley's character. You know this table when they're sitting around the lunch table and they're giving grace and Bo- Ricky Bobby prays to sweet Lord baby Jesus and his wife is like, honey, you know, he was a man. He did grow up. And Cal, no- Cal Naughton Jr. has the famous quote, I like to picture my Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says like, I'm formal, but I'm here to party, and I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. And it's like actually a really, really clever kind of uh, criticism, right, of the way we all take Jesus and shape him towards our agenda. What Mark is, uh, or more, more accurately, who Mark is, is Peter's secretary. And uh, this is, these are the first, the earliest recorded words about Jesus' life. All the other Gospels actually use Mark as source material. And so we want to read... Peter's secretary, recording what Peter said about being with Jesus for that time. And so that's why we're looking at this text tonight. We're going to look at Mark 1, 1 through 15, uh, and then talk about it. So let's read. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger before your face, who, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sin. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would be with us as we consider your word. Our, our minds and our hearts are bent. Uh, it is hard for us to understand these things. 
But we trust and pray and hope that your Holy Spirit would attend to the, your word as we discuss it, dear God. Please teach us. And if I say anything foolish and if I say anything wrong, I pray that you would grant us for, uh, to forget it, dear Lord. Be with us and let us encounter your truth and not my opinions. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, if you're new here, maybe you haven't encountered this yet, but I, I, I'm guessing several of the older students have encountered this. Um, I drive to campus about once. So I'm on campus several days, but only usually about once do I take my car. Usually I ride my bike. But I don't have a parking pass, and so I have my illegal spots around campus that, yeah, that's right, the Christian pastors parks in the illegal spots. We can talk about that later. That I think I can get by with, but... Once or twice a quarter, if you've seen the yellow envelope, it is like just a beacon of horror that just screams at you from hundreds of yards away when it's on your windshield. And a couple of times a quarter, the yellow envelope shows up on my windshield, and it's the, on my windshield, and it's it's the parking ticket, and it wrecks your day, and it's things are so expensive in California, like it's I don't, it's forty five dollar fine, and um. I don't know how y'all deal with it, but I deal with the parking ticket like some other things I deal with in my life, and this is not a healthy pattern. This is not what you should do. But I just don't look at it, and I just take it off. And what I like to pretend is that in the back of my glove compartment that there is a portal to the basement of the universe. <laughs> and, uh, and I stick the parking ticket in there, on some level hoping that it will disappear, and on some level knowing that it won't disappear. And it stays there, and it stays there for a long time. And if you've gotten the dreaded yellow envelope and taken the approach I've taken, which I don't really recommend, it grants you like right a little mental freedom for a while, a little emotional freedom, because you just decide to pretend it's not there. Um, but then you get the letter in the mail from the DMV. Who's gotten the letter in the mail from the DMV? You don't have to raise your hands, man. Okay, we got some honest people here. That's what the confession was for. But the letter in the mail from the DMV says, now your ticket is $90. And now it's come due, and it's time to do business. And you've got to deal with it. Um, you know, I suspect probably all of us have put off important things, right? Something comes due, something significant, more significant than a parking ticket, and it's easier, and actually you can function, you can still function really well if you just don't deal with it. You can set it aside for a while. You know it's there on some level. Uh, on, at some point, you intend to deal with it. But frankly, you have the capacity to still function really highly without dealing with it. And um, it could be a lot of different things, right? It could be some personal issues you need to deal with. It could be some issues between you and God you need to deal with, between you and other people that you need to deal with. But it's something that you're like, I know this isn't okay, but I actually know that I can function moderately well if I just set it aside and pretend I don't have to deal with it for a while. Right? So you throw it in the glove compartment. But at some point you're going to have to do business with it. John the Baptist right here is the letter that comes in the mail. He's the letter from the DMV. God is coming to do business with his people. Just like the parking ticket, you, can, you, just, you can't ignore it forever. What happened, what's happening right here is John the Baptist, or the, it's actually more appropriate to call him John the Baptizer, is coming on the scene in the first century. It's been hundreds of years where it's been radio silence from God toward his people Israel. 
And this guy who has actually prophesied what's quoted here are verses from Isaiah, which is written hundreds of years earlier, also from Malachi, also from Exodus, kind of all saying hundreds of years ahead of time, at some point, the letter's coming. God's going to come and do business. And you're going to have to do, you're going to have to deal with that. And John, John the baptizer is the forebear, right? The messenger preparing the way. He's announcing on the countryside, he's announcing in the ancient Near East, God's come to do business now. And it's no, you just can't ignore it any longer. And every time, it's appropriate for us to also consider, every time we open the Word of God, the same thing is happening. Every time we encounter these words, every time we encounter His revelation to us, God is saying, you've got to do business with that. It's no longer... Uh, okay to just set it aside. And maybe you've been putting off dealing with him, right? And maybe you've been putting off dealing with yourself and dealing with some things in your life. And maybe your plan is to kind of put the notice or that thought or those vices or those lingering things that you don't want to deal with, put them away in the glove compartment. We're opening the Bible. And God's doing business. And so that begs the important question then of what business is he doing, right? Um, there's a ton going on here. We'll actually eat lunch at Tresser tomorrow at noon. I'd love to talk about more stuff going on in this text because there's, there, there's just all, all these historical moments and all these biblical moments coming together. But what is God's business? If God is saying to the people then but also to us now, you just can't ignore it anymore. What is it we can't ignore? And there's a word that sits in verse 1 and sits in verse 15, and it's a literary device called an an inclusio, and it tells us what God's business is. A lot of times there'll be a word or a phrase that sits at the beginning and the end of a passage, and that tells you, it's a signpost saying, this is what this passage is about. And that word here is gospel, right? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the passage ends by Jesus saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The word that best describes the business that God has with you is gospel. And so we've got to understand what it is. Repent and believe the gospel. When you hear those words, right, gospel preaching, gospel proclamation, repent and believe the gospel. If you're like me, a lot of times what you naturally think is you think about the guys that come to White Plaza. And if you're new, you're going to learn about them. These guys that come and they preach under the guise of preaching the gospel, this is what they're going to say, essentially, behave and God will like you, misbehave, and He won't. And in a lot of ways, that's the way we conceive of the idea of repenting and believing the gospel, right? Behave, get your life in order, get things the right way, and if you do that well enough, God will like you, right? And don't misbehave, or God won't like you. And if that's how we conceive of the gospel... What does it produce? What kind of people, what does it do to the human heart and the human soul to say that's the gospel and then to proclaim that? Well, here, we could go, we could talk all day about that, but here's kind of the basis, the the basics of what it does. It it produces uh, profound insecurity, doesn't it? Behave well enough or God will get you. But if you behave well enough, uh, you've got a good chance of God favoring you. Here's the problem with it. Everybody's, you all know someone doing a lot better than you. We all do. Right? So maybe you are, you're particularly religiously devoted, you know, and you're doing pretty well, 
in your own mind's eye. And you can look at some other people and see that you're doing better than them. But the problem is there's some other people further ahead of you, right? And they're still insecure. So how can you be confident that you've done enough? And this even extends beyond religious things. We're all trying to prove ourselves, right? This is Stanford where everybody is trying to present to the world they have it together, right? And you know your flaws and you know your weaknesses and you know the ways that you don't think you can keep up and you can't let anybody see that. And it produces what's interesting about Stanford, but it's actually not unique to Stanford. This is everywhere, is that there are profound insecurities across this campus in spite of appearances, because we're all good at creating really impressive appearances, right? Nobody knows the insecurity and the comparison that's weighting us down, right? Because we've been living the dynamic of behave, perform, so that you'll be approved of, right? It makes us insecure, but it also makes us arrogant, because again, once you get on that treadmill, there are going to be some people in front of you that make you secure, operating at a higher pace and more successful, and there are going to be some people behind you that you can look at, and you're like, well, I'm doing a lot better than them. One of the things you'll experience or you'll see is that there is paternalism and elitism here that uh, kind of masquerades as altruism, right? That one of the cool things about Stanford and this community is there are some awesome things going on serving people all around the world globally that are in difficult situations. Just cool nonprofit stuff. But what you'll also see in a lot of that, not not wholesale writing it all off, but what you'll also see is that what looks like altruism is a lot of paternalism and elitism because when you're helping those people, they're not really your equals, right? You can't really relate to them because you're, right, a Stanford student. You're, you're, you're a global one percenter, right? You're above, above a global one percenter, you know? And so there's a lot of elitism and an arrogance that comes in when we start believing and ranking ourselves according to our behavior and think the dynamic of life is perform morally, religiously, academically, professionally, socially, whatever it is, and then be approved of. That's not the gospel. That is not the Christian religion. That's not what the Bible is about. And those, that kind of living is the very thing that dehumanizes us and breaks down our humanity. So then what is the gospel? What does that term mean? It's the thing that grounds the whole book of Mark. Uh, The gospel doesn't mean book. That's the way we often think of it. And to recover that word, when Mark's using this term gospel and writing in the first century, they know exactly what he means. And we need to recover what the first century meaning of the word gospel was. And, And one example among many is this. In 9 BC, so about 39 years before this, we have a calendar uh, in in archaeology, and it announces the birth of Emperor Augustus. And do you know what the announcement of the birth of the emperor is called? It's called the Gospel. We have other archaeological documents. Anytime an emperor is victorious in battle, or an emperor is coronated, or a new emperor is born, they send a message all throughout the empire, and that message is called the gospel. Gospel is good news. It's not a command to behave. It's an announcement of something done. That's the big difference. That's, that's kind of what all tonight is, is the gospel is not a command to behave. It is a pronouncement or an announcement of something done. And the, approaching life with that indifference and understanding will radically change who you are. The gospel begins... I mean, here's the reality of it. You actually don't need Jesus in order to change your behavior. 
There are actually a lot of other methods you can use to change your behavior, if that's what you came here for. Now, we'll talk later about how the gospel will end up transforming us, but I'll say this much. There are actually uh, clinics, there are methods, there are drugs, there are books that can get you to change the way you behave, if that's simply what you came here for. Right? That's not what we need. And if we present the gospel as simply the command to behave then it's not very different from those things. It's basically a threat-based behavior modification system. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the announcement of something done for you. The gospel begins right here, right the beginning of the gospel, by showing us what God has done in history, what the true king has done. The first thing that he tells us, right, to understand the good news is that Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name, that's a title, Jesus the Anointed One, the Son of God, is being set apart to do something important, right? He's baptized in verse 11. We could talk about that all day. It's cool stuff. But essentially what the baptism is doing is confirming his role as the servant of God, as the Son of God, as God incarnate come to do something. The gospel is an announcement that God came for you. And if you want to think about how to relate to the gospel, if you're tempted, like everybody is, including me, to think the gospel is behave, and when you think, I'm trying to be a Christian, and being a Christian is about just trying to behave and thinking about how God's telling me how to behave, scratch that for a second and think about the gospel this way. You should think of it like this. Uh, a good friend of mine, Brian Haybig, he's, a, he's an old RUF campus minister, told his own story of getting... Uh, losing power in the snow, and it reminded reminded me of uh, a story Elizabeth and I had. Seven years ago, um, we were in St. Louis in grad school. At this point in time, we had two two two-year-olds and two newborns. I have two sets of identical twins that are amazing. Y'all need to come to our house and play. All of y'all are invited to our house all the time. We watch a lot of college football, and we play a ton, and um, my girls are a blast. But at this point in time, seven years ago, two two two-year-olds, two newborns, Four kids in diapers. Ice storm sweeps through St. Louis. We lose power, all right? We're panicking. What do we do? We can't keep the newborns in freezing cold house for long. Okay, it gets worse. We have a tree fall through the skylight in our dining room, right? We're accumulating snow and ice inside of our house at this point. Four kids in diapers, two two two-year-olds, two newborns. Uh, My older brother lived in St. Louis at the time. We packed up the minivan, drove to his house. He lived in a two-bedroom house. He and his wife had two kids. Six kids in diapers, four adults, and a two-bedroom house. Here's my question for you, and this is how I want you to think about the gospel when you hear this term. When the dude calls four days later and says, Mr. Wood, we fixed your power, and Mr. Wood, we've repaired the ceiling, and we've cleaned out your house, that's the gospel. That's good news of something done for you. That's what it's like. It's not a call to behave. It's the announcement of something done good for you. And it completely changed who Elizabeth and I were. Right? There was rejoicing. There was singing. All the things when the gospel was proclaimed in the Bible also happened in that moment. Right? There was dancing. All the crazy things. Right? We were Pentecostal at that moment. The gospel... Receiving good news absolutely changes the way you live, but from a totally different dynamic. Now, here's the one thing I will say, and this is in this text. It's in, it's in verse 15, which is essentially the application of the text. 
There is one thing required of me to experience the joy of the news the man gave me. I had to believe him. I had to believe what he said. If I didn't believe him, there's no joy. Right? There's no dancing, there's no singing, there's no Pentecostal wood family. Right? But I trusted him. But you've got to believe him to actually experience the good news. The gospel is not that God threatens you to achieve and behave so that he might like you. All the, all the rest of life is performance-based. Right? Y'all know that because y'all are here and you worked hard to get here. This was not given to you. You know? And it's no wonder that we're so afraid and insecure because the verdict is always held in balance, right, according to our performance. God operates in a manner opposite of the world. The gospel is an announcement that he's done something for you. And when you believe the good news, it changes you. But being changed because of good news you received is radically different than trying to change yourself because you're afraid. And it produces a totally different kind of person. So what is the good news? In one sense, that's what the rest of the quarter is about, but we get a glimpse of it here. Verse 1, the beginning. This is the beginning of the good news. And one, one little moment I want to focus in on here that gives us a glimpse of the good news. And an interesting happens right at the beginning of the good news. God in the person of Jesus is coming to do something. He's, he's baptized as a validation of who he is, as a way that he was validated. And then he went into the wilderness for 40 days. And he was tempted. And that might seem odd to you, but there's actually something going on here that these first hearers would have understood. They would have immediately thought, so you're establishing Jesus as the Son of God. In their mindsets, they would have always thought, you know, the Israelites always were saying they were the children of God. And now you're saying Jesus is the Son of God. But Israel is supposed to be the children of God, but what everybody knew, the Israelites included, is they weren't very good at it. In fact, they really made a mess of their calling to be the children of God. Right? Just like we've made a mess of our lives. And every Jew would know this is one of the keys to our identity and to our stories. One of the foundational moments that formed us as a people is this. Is when they were, they were delivered from slavery out of Egypt and then wandered in the desert for 40 years. And you know what Israel did in the desert for 40 years? They grumbled. They grumbled against God. Now, you might think that doesn't have anything, I don't understand why that has anything to do with us. But this is what Mark is establishing, and this is what Jesus is establishing by these actions. And it's actually of utmost importance. Jesus is the child of God that we always should have been. He was faced with temptation. He's, Jesus is walking through the historical moments of Israel and saying, Israel, you were supposed to be the children of God. You were supposed to endure temptation. You were supposed to say no. You weren't supposed to grumble I'm the child of God that does it all right. I'm the son that we were always intended to be. He didn't fall. He didn't grumble in the desert. He did what Israel couldn't do. He's the perfect son. Here's why it's important. It's important because at the foundation of the gospel proclaimed is this. His his spotless life is the sacrifice for our sins. The reason the good news is not Behave so that God will like you, but rather listen, hear, and believe 
The reason that's the gospel is because the good news is that Jesus earned God's favor for you. And it's precisely things like him withstanding temptation in the desert that show us that his record is spotless, that his trust of God is perfect, that his obedience is flawless. And the good news is that he credits us with the spotless record that he earned. And we receive the favor of God that he earned. The gospel is believing that. And that's why you don't have to behave in order to earn God's favor. It's earned for you in Jesus. At the end of the day, you're going to either race through life trying to manifest the perfect record in all the different realms of being human, right? Moral, religious, professional, social, whatever it is. You're going to race through life trying to manifest that perfect record so you can receive the rewards, and your life will be full of fear and full of arrogance and full of insecurity, or you can believe the good news when it's spoken. Jesus earned the reward of heaven and God himself for you. And that makes you into a totally different kind of person. And one of the first things that will happen to you, and you'll hear me talk about this all the time if you're around RUF, is it will give you unfathomable rest. And if this is your first couple of days on campus, you're going to find out real soon, rest is the hardest thing to come by here. It's the hardest thing to come by. But when you stop performing to be loved, but recognize that you're loved, and then actually live your life outside out of that dynamic, you'll work your tail off and you'll be rested instead of anxious. I'll close with this. Jesus gives us the application of the text, and these are his first words. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Right? Repent's another one of those religious words we're afraid of. So we'll close talking about that. Repent, you'll hear the guys say it in White Plaza. Repent means stop doing all your bad stuff and start doing good things. And that's the way we conceive of it. And that's a misunderstanding. The Greek word is metanoia. And, and meta means to change or to turn. And noia means your mind. It's where we get the word gnostic or agnostic, right? The Greek word is nos. He's saying, you got to change the way you think about the world. you got to change the way you think about the gospel. you got to change the way you think about God. That's what's required. Behavior modification just deals with actions, and there are a lot of other solutions if that's all you want. God's actually after your heart and your mind. He's actually after something deeper than simply your behavior. And he's saying, change your mind and change your heart on this matter that is the gospel. And so... What did people do when they heard John preaching this? Right? He appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism and repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the country and all Judea went out there and they were baptized by him. And what did they do? They confessed their sins. Right? What is our instinct if life is performance based? You've got to hide your flaws. When the sins, when the flaws, when the weaknesses all crop up, you got to hide them. You can't let those show up. They'll get a hold of you. People will know. You'll not be able to maintain what you've built yourself into at this point, right? What if the good news is that God has secured His love to you through the forgiveness of sins? You know what you get to do? You get the freedom, and this is real freedom if you've done it. 
you get the freedom to put the real you out there and say, this is me, and I have got no excuses. I tried hard, and it wasn't very good. Dude, the confession of sin is the sweetest thing you get to do if you're ever in a place where you're free to do it. But see, you can only do it if the gospel is good news, not behave so God will like you. Right? You get to say, I'm, I'm not a person of love. I can't stand my roommate. I'm self-absorbed. I judge people all the time. There are things in my life I can't get rid of that I've tried to get rid of forever. You get to say all of that because none of that has a bearing on God's favor for you anymore because the gospel is believe the good news about Jesus, not behave so that he'll like you. And so you might find yourself in that place, right, where you're putting off dealing with God because it's daunting. But I think actually... It's a little bit like the last parking ticket I got. In February of this year, I walked to my car. I parked behind the SAE house. That's my secret space. And uh, maybe the cops just don't want to go behind the SAE house. There's no telling what you'll find there. But there's some SAEs here. We love y'all. Um, walked there, and I spotted the yellow envelope. And, you know, the shocks weren't off now. I'm just, like, jaded. It doesn't affect me anymore. I was annoyed. The main thing I wrestled with is, like, oh, i got to tell Elizabeth about this. I can't just blow $45 because I was too lazy. Um, and I grabbed it, and right before I threw it in the glove compartment, I just noticed that it was different. The envelope was the same, but the paper inside was different. This is a true story. So I pulled out the piece of paper, and it was a blank sheet of paper. And in red marker, red Sharpie on there, it said, No ticket for you today. Have a nice day. Yeah. Whoever that is, like, Jesus bless you. Like, you probably get the gospel more than any of us. <laughs> God is calling you to do business. And we want to put it off. Because we think it's going to be about how we need to shape up so that he'll finally like us. And the reason that we're looking at the person of Jesus this quarter is because I want you to see that if you open up and let him do business with you, it's not the bad news you think. It's not the parking ticket we normally get. It's the last one I got. Right? The yellow envelope doesn't contain what you think it contains. You think it says, behave or God's going to get you. Even though we even parked illegally, right? But the gospel is something good that maybe you didn't expect. So deal with it. Let God do business with you. Let's pray.